Welcome to Studio Two. I'm Matt Gillum. Uh, <laughs> oh no! I'm sorry. Like I'm sorry. So I'm Avi Wolfman. Totally Aaron. different. You know, I knew I'd flub something <laughs> right off the bat when I came back. Cherry. Yeah. How are you? I am good, Avi. I'm Cherry Greg. Everybody, <laughs> Avi, welcome back. I was about to say because mustache versus full beard. Come on, man. <laughs> but it's good to have you back. How was your vacay? Pretty good. I was in Florida. And uh, I wouldn't mind being there now. It was yeah, 15 degrees when I walked out this morning. Since I came back, the Eagle season imploded. So I probably should have just stayed on vacation and let you guys handle it maybe for a few more months. But back I'm trying to life, <laughs> trying. back to reality. <laughs> I'm trying to revive the vibes today. Yes. We're going to get back to our water level. I know. And today we have some hot topics, Avi. We were waiting for you. Highly debated. Things coming up for you in just a couple of minutes. We're going to talk about bad drivers and to be specific, why American drivers are so deadly. We have the author of a recent New York Times magazine article with us, and he'll talk about things, everything from infrastructure issues to psychology as to some of the reasons why. People have opinions on this. They do. Thoughts. They got thoughts. Folks, our email is still studio Two at whyy.org. You can also hop on the phone, give us a call. Don't do so while driving. The number is 888-477-9499. Then, Cherry, later in the hour, we're going to talk about that big election coming up later this year. Of course, Mm -hmm. Iowa just held their caucuses. We're going to hear from local experts about predictions for Pennsylvania from primaries to the general. Yeah, 2024, lots happening. But first, you know, and I really missed our news chat. So we're going to go into the news. We, you got the shovel first. Okay, sure. So um, you know that uh, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez yeah. is facing federal bribery charges with his wife, Nadine. Mm-hmm. The update is that they are now seeking separate trials in this federal trial. So, Cherry, I'll ask you, Counselor. Yes. Cherry Gregg Esquire. Yes. What does this mean? Well, you know, it it makes sense. There are some legal reasons for separating them. Um, You know, there is a thing called the marital privilege, which means that a spousal privilege, should I say, Uh which means that the government cannot compel, um, you know, you to testify against your spouse. But there's also the marital communications privilege, which protects communications between uh, a husband and wife or spouses, should I say. Okay. And but you can either party can waive that. And by separating the trials, if one party wants to bring in some communications, but not necessarily affect the case of the other person in that marriage, uh, it would make sense to separate it because it's, you know, you got two separate proceedings going on and that gets allows them to separate the, interesting. the evidence yeah like so it's interesting analysis okay. yeah so we'll see what happens okay there. yeah and, and for folks that don't remember we've talked about this a lot but uh, the the base basic charges are that menendez used his official position in the u.s senate mm-hmm. to um aid foreign governments including qatar and egypt and to help out some buddies uh and that his wife was involved in all of this mm-hmm. obviously he says i didn't do it yeah he says his lawyers say Senator Menendez isn't just not guilty; he is innocent. So, we'll let a trying to parse that he's yeah. not just not guilty; he's innocent. A all right, <laughs> some good word salad there from yeah, the lawyers. Yeah, good lawyer. Love it, love it, love it. So we're gonna move on now to Philadelphia. The city has been, and our region has 
basically been under a code blue uh, since Sunday, which means that the city must provide emergency housing for houseless residents. And this comes just as a news story drops in the Philadelphia Inquirer that reveals that some Philadelphia homeless shelters who have served residents referred to them by the city, they claim that they have experienced severe delays in payments under their contracts. Um, about a half dozen nonprofits with contracts with the city, uh, city's Office of Homeless Services, they told the Inquirer that those delays have been happening since at least 2020 and that those delays have stretched months or even years in some cases. And um, yeah, they claim, you know, lack of funding can jeopardize this emergency housing that we're seeing right now under the cold blue. Yeah, interesting story, kind mm -hmm. of an incomplete story because yeah. we don't really know why these delays are happening. It sounds like there's an investigation mm -hmm. ongoing, but mm -hmm. not much in the way of answers, except in the Inquirer article, there was at least the implication that it's not a, a matter of personal corruption. No, no. So well, hopefully that bears out. Um, but we still don't quite know, it yeah. seems, why there have been these long delays for some providers and not even all providers mm -hmm. that provide shelter. And they, yeah, because you know. some had some very good experiences with the city. But, you know, I will point out that the Office of Homeless Services has spent nearly $15 million more than it was budgeted over the last four years. Not sure if that has something to do with it, but the this whole thing has been referred to the city's inspector general who is investigating the matter. So we shall see. Just a reminder, really, that so much of government yeah. service now is basically your taxpayer dollars going to some office, which then distributes it to mm -hmm. a lot of contractors. Mm -hmm. Some of them are nonprofit, some of them are for profit. But that's a lot of how government functions now. And sometimes that layer of yeah. money movement doesn't work so well. Yeah. And you, you, this is not like exclusive to the Office of Homeless Services in Philadelphia. It's just kind of the way government works these yeah, days. Yeah, and it's tape and, and sometimes all sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, and I got to shout out WHYY does have a podcast looking at the issue of youth homelessness. It's titled Young Unhoused and Unseen, and you can check it out wherever you get your podcast. We're also going to check out this story. Um, Jerry Jordan was mm. the longtime head of the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, which is the main teachers union here in the city of Philadelphia. They have 13,000 members. Uh, Jordan announced last night that he's going to retire. Yeah. He has led the PFT, as it's often known, since 2008. He's worked for the union since the 1980s. I got to know him pretty well. Um, to the extent that you can really know Jerry, um, I got to know him pretty well on the education beat over the years. And he was one of the main figures in every seemingly every education conversation and debate in the city of Philadelphia for about 15 years. So um, his absence will leave a pretty big vacuum. Yeah. And I mean, I, I didn't cover education, but occasionally there will be protests. And he was always a great source, great person to talk to, to give you background information. And we got to remember that he is he was in charge of the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers during a very tumultuous time. Yeah. Um, big budget cuts. School closures, yep. remember? Of course, uh, of course, yeah. Dealing with the School Reform Commission when they tried to cancel the teachers' contracts, COVID crisis. So he, he was in charge during wild times in Philadelphia schools. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll just say my observations of him, uh, he was a very astute politician and strategist, mm -hmm. I felt. Um, 
kind of a master at always talking but never really saying too much. <laughs> Ooh, that, which that's, is, which that's is, so good. But, but I think it's that. a real skill <laughs> if you're in a position like that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not putting him down at all. I mean, yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. legitimately a skill. Um, and I think also you have to understand a little bit that the power of the union to do to, to do the nuclear option, which is strike, mm-hmm. is severely limited in the state mm-hmm. of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. There are laws that really restrict how much and for how long teachers can yeah. strike. And so it, the position is, is often really uh, of the union president, kind of a, a soapbox position. Yeah. It's a political position. Um, and I thought he seemed to usually come out on top when there were political differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and another interesting thing about his leadership is, and I don't know how this compares to other unions, teachers yeah. unions across the country, but they they got involved in politics often that had nothing to do directly with education. So mm-hmm. like sort of broader liberal coalition issues, whether it was gun violence um, or poverty. And of course those things track back to education on yeah. some level, but they were always sort of out front on that stuff in sort of the Jerry Jordan era. And I think that was part of the... the the box that they were in. They kind of had to be a political entity because they couldn't do all of the things that a normal labor union would do to flex it, their muscle and their power. Yeah, and I, a lot of people are sending in great quotes. They loved him, liked his leadership. And one I have to um, read from the Inquirer. They quoted Brandy Weingarten, president of the National American Federation of Teachers, who says, He combines a deep sense of compassion and righteous anger, a great strategic mind with being a real gentleman and a real mensch. So I don't know about the righteous anger part. He's always pretty cool, but maybe maybe a little bit from time to time. You know, but you see him at at a protest. The righteous anger comes out, you know, so, but we'll see. Well, I don't do a lot of those protests. There were often angrier people than Jerry, but, you know. uh, He'll stick around till July. And uh, so, yeah. Looking forward to, to seeing what's next for him. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that I um, will not be looking forward to is the elimination um, of some really cool signs that I have come to, to, to be very fond of in my signs drive Signs that you're fond of. Yeah, okay. to Delaware. And a sign like, don't text and drive, arrive alive. <laughs> you like that. Okay. I like that sign. And because the Federal Highway Administration uh, will ban these funny, quirky electronic road signs They're in banned. 2026. Yeah, we talked about these messages in New Jersey, like the one that says only Rudolph should be lit. <laughs> Santa's watching. Put like down that. the phone. Um, at the time we talked about this, the signs, the future of the signs were unclear. But now the feds have told the states to take them down, calling them too distracting. And so states have until 2026 to phase them out. Um, and you can no longer reference pop culture or be funny or quirky. And um, so you have to say like accident ahead or nothing. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. You have to be very boring and straightforward. Well, I don't want to be too flip about this today because we're going to talk about yeah. how American drivers um, are, are often very distracted. distracted yeah. And uh, I, I sort of reflexively, my thought was, oh, it's too bad they're getting rid of these signs. This is but... like a nice little pleasure of driving, which is not a pleasurable activity overall. Mm-hmm. However, sort of, I don't know how you can justify, really, a small bit of humor at the expense, potentially, of someone's attention. That's true. You know? Well, I guess we won't get that July 4th reminder, don't drive star-spangled hammered. We'll or miss you. We'll miss come you. Come on, Eileen. Your speed is obscene. That's down from Delaware. That was in Delaware, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. 
Um, <laughs> coming up. What a loss. Okay. Uh, talk, coming up, we are talking about driving. We're yes. talking about uh, something. Seriously about driving. Something yeah. pretty serious, which is the fact that American drivers are far more deadly than drivers in other parts of the world. We want your thoughts, and we want you to stick with us on Studio 2. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And uh, this is kind of a bad news segment, but we're going to start it with a little bit of good news Mm -hmm. from the tri-state area. Traffic deaths are down in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey compared to 2022. That sounds great. Yeah. But traffic deaths went up significantly in the early years of the pandemic. So with numbers going back down again, we've kind of gone from really bad just back to regular bad. Yeah. And to put it into a global perspective, American drivers are really failing. And there are many reasons for that. Distracted driving, intoxicated driving, careless driving, and the list goes on. Why are American drivers so deadly? That is the question writer Matthew Scher poses in a recent New York Times Magazine article. He is with us today to share what he found. Matt, welcome into Studio Two. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. We appreciate you being here. But before we get started and peppering you with questions, Matt, we want to ask our listeners, do you consider yourself a bad driver? What do you do to avoid road rage? Have you encountered bad drivers? I bet Mm. you have. Give us a call. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email us, studio2 at whyy.org. And Matt, uh, I want to just give start start everything off. Where does the United States stand when it comes to driving fatalities generally, and how do we look when compared to other countries? Among the worst in the world is the easiest way to say it. Uh, Terrible, right? I mean, it's hard to compare. Not every country keeps statistics in the same way we do or as accurately as we do. Um, And roads in in different parts of the world are really different. But, you know, if we're thinking about comparing the U.S. to countries with a generally similar similar highway layout or generally similar roads, places in Europe, Australia, we're way behind, you know, the bottom of the barrel. More people die on these roads exponentially than in other countries. it's, It's a genuine crisis. Before I get into the why of that discrepancy, and I'm talking about the discrepancy between traffic fatalities in this country and uh, Western Europe and other wealthier nations. I want to ask you, Matt, what was the story, let's say, before 2010 of, of traffic fatalities per capita, per mile driven in the U.S.? That's a great question. And the short answer is that we were trending in the right direction. I mean, things weren't great, right? If you look back to stats from 2010s, early 2000s, you would still find officials who would say, you know, this isn't acceptable. We can't live like this. But it was way better than it was. And the the brief history there, I'll keep this very concise. <laughs> you know, in the 60s, people were dying at a higher rate than, than they are now. That was largely because cars were flimsy, right? The gas tanks exploded. Um, manufacturers had no incentive to make cars safer. Congress stepped in 
uh, instituted a bunch of regulations that we still live with today. And from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s, fatalities on the roads go down, right? Because cars get safer and they continue to go down. This, what we're, what we're living through right now around the country is a very different kind of problem. Um, the, the rates are, are nearly as high as they were in the 60s, but, but for radically different reasons. But to answer your question, they were getting better, right? Thing, things were improving slowly. Yeah, and I, I was talking to Avi earlier. I remember riding in the back of my grandfather's car. There was no seatbelt. It was like literally sitting in the on a couch and mm -hmm. just riding in the car. And today, you know, there's safety, you know, all sorts of things. So what happened in 2010 that sort of, you know, put a halt to this downward trend when it came to traffic fatalities? Well, the, the reversal really happens in 2020, you know, sort of, it coincides with COVID, for lack of a better point. I mean, it is COVID. We, when we think when we're trying to trace this back to the the emergence of really bad behavior, that this mm. huge spike that you see, it's around 2020. Now, in some ways, that's not a surprise, right? I mean, we can all think back to what when when COVID first descended, and we we're hearing these stories about you know people punching flight attendants. That never used to happen. This fury that came out of Americans. Um, and driving, even though there were fewer people on the road, people were more stressed, more anxious, more aggressive, and deaths and accidents, sorry, not accidents, crashes, started to spike. What's a little distressing to people who study this kind of stuff is it hasn't subsided, right? It's like the the switch, I interview one specialist who says, you know, some switch got flipped during COVID. We all forgot to act like human beings. We all forgot to be courteous to each other. Uh, but that hasn't changed when it comes to the roads. And, you know, there are all sorts of reasons this happens, right? But the best explanation I've seen, there's a stress in America study that's published every year uh, by the American Psychiatric Organization. And it shows, especially in the past couple of years, Americans are angrier, more anxious than we've been in a really long time. We're, we're more worried about the the future of the country, we're more worried about money, we're more worried about politics. And that stress manifests itself on the roads in a lot of horrible ways. But would you expect, Matt, that at some point the pandemic-fueled spike in traffic fatalities and in crashes will sort of naturally recede as, you know, we, we readjust to a new reality. Like, for instance, you know, with homicides in, all across the country, there was this huge spike, including here in Philadelphia. And now we've seen a pretty clear downward trend starting to emerge, and it's still early. Um, why wouldn't we just see the same when it comes to the roadways? I think we can, you do see some um, some decline in some parts of the country, including your part of the country. It's, it's about half and half, right? Yeah. There are parts of the country where fatalities are starting to decline. I would say that the problem is this bad driving epidemic is not, it, it, it originated with this stress and anxiety, but there are other things that feed into it. So, and other things that are not going away. Distraction, obviously, listeners will probably, that's the first question that I got when the article came out. It's all about distraction and all about smartphones, right? And it is, it's part of that, right? We're, we're driving in cars that are safer, but that have more screens than ever. Just, a, just enough screens to fill a sports bar. And that's not counting the phone that we can hold in our hands. So there's distraction. There's also the fact that we're all driving 
more than ever and we're mm. driving longer distances and traffic is terrible it's 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 terrible in the city where i live atlanta it's terrible around the country so the roads are in bad condition we get onto these roads they're in bad condition we're everyone's frustrated because they can't get home get home quickly enough um, our commutes are really long all that stress is still there uh it the distraction is there and then you have these upticks which are hard to explain like people stopping wearing seatbelts, right i mean this was mm. this was something that that shocked me when i started to dig into the research along with the aggressive driving so many people now for reasons that i could not explain and no one can explain are opting to just not buckle their seatbelt. Right. so yes to, to your point that the stress can come down the anxiety can come down we can we can get back to a level of normal but there's still all these factors that are making the roads extremely dangerous and if you are just tuning in we're speaking with matt share contributing writer at the new york times magazine who wrote the article why are american drivers so deadly do you consider yourself a bad driver what do you do to avoid road rage Call us. The number is 888-477-9499, or you can email studio2 at whyy.org. And, Matt, we have a caller named Thomas on the line who wants to talk about the weight of cars. Thomas, you're on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? I try to be quick. Um, the average vehicle weight over the past 30, 40 years, uh, Honda Civic, for example, 30 years ago was at 2,500 pounds, cars 2,000 pounds. Honda Civic today is, what, three and a half, four thousand pounds. Average vehicle weight is going up and up and up. It's simple physics. Force equals mass times acceleration. You can say drive five miles per hour slower. That's not it. It's like the doubling and tripling of the vehicle weight. You have 150-pound people getting in five and 10,000-pound vehicles to go a few miles. Mm. Thank you. Uh, that's that's something you talk about in the article, yeah. right, Matt? I mean, this is absolutely something that distinguishes Americans from other countries. Mm -hmm. We drive really heavy cars. Yeah, the caller's right. I would add two things to what he said, which is exactly correct. Everything he said is correct. Um, the two things are America has a love affair with SUVs and big trucks. It's unavoidable. We want them. Sedans are getting phased out in this country, right? Look, look at the big auto manufacturers. Most of them don't make many sedans anymore. They make big SUVs. And as the caller says, the SUVs are getting bigger. The thing that he didn't add, which I would add, is that cars are also getting faster, mm -hmm. extremely so. I recently drove one of these new Teslas that can go to 60 miles an hour in two seconds. Um, wow. That is race car technology. That is a weapon. That's a weapon. And you don't need a special license to get in one of these cars. But is there a way uh, to need... is there a way to do anything about that from a policy level, Matt? And sorry to cut you off because, you know, there there was at one point a push for the federal government to regulate certain aspects of car design um, in the 1960s to make cars less dangerous. But that feels like a little bit of a third rail, telling someone you can't drive a car of a certain weight or a, a car that goes a certain speed or accelerates to this amount. Do you think realistically that's something that we can legislate in this country? 
No, I don't. I mean, I agree with you. It's analogous to the gun debate, right? I mean, there are plenty of people draw these comparisons. Mm. Uh, we know how to stop gun violence in the U.S. if we really wanted to. And we know how to stop uh, a lot of these fatalities, car fatalities in the U.S. if we wanted to. They, some of it would be what you said. You regulate, um, you regulate the speed on automobiles. You have more speed cameras like they do in Europe. And you up the enforcement and up the ticketing. That is just simply... It's a it's a pipe dream, right? I I I personally do not believe that that could happen in the United States mm. in 2024. Could it have happened in the 60s when these laws were first passed, when we had an extremely progressive Congress? Uh, this is the same Congress that passed all these laws that that passed uh, the civil rights legislation. Could something like that happen uh, today? Fat chance, basically. I, so, I just I just don't, don't and think I, it's possible. And I just want to jump in. There's an email from Leah who says it's because of smartphones. We're talking about distraction here. She says, not only do I notice drivers on their phones, I see pedestrians on their phones all the time as they walk across major busy streets. And I want to ask because there are other reasons, there are other things that happen in America that differ, that make us very different from uh, what's happening in other industrialized countries. And I think about the cars that we use. Most of us drive automatic cars. And I've read that, you know, uh, in other countries, they use more, you know, the stick shifts, right? And so in America, we're allowed, we have a free hand a lot of times, can be more distracted. Does that weigh in to why, um, you know, you see more fatalities here and it's such a stark difference than what you see in other countries? Yeah, distraction is obviously a big part of it. It's it's interesting because it's it's not quite as big in terms of fatalities as you might expect. It 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 contributes to it, but it's not quite as big. But what you just said right there is something really important, which is that it's it's a cultural thing in a lot of ways, right? In in European cities, um, in Australia, New Zealand, um, cities have been reshaped to make more room for pedestrians and cyclists. That's become part of the culture there. Uh, in Copenhagen, for example, it's a city of bicycles. Uh, we do not, We there are some exceptions. New York is a good example, but even there, there's been hard pushback. We are a culture of cars. We drive everywhere we go. We've made it purposefully hard over the past, you know, six or seven decades to get anywhere that does not involve a car. It's very hard for a lot of people in America to walk to work, to walk to school, to even take a train to school. Yeah. We yeah. put people in their cars. That's where we live. And, you know, this is sort of the result. So I think, you know, I, I hate to be a get mm. really doomsday-ish about it, but it's true. It's it's <laughs> yeah. like- we, You're a little pessimistic you know, we, here, Matt, yeah. We can, we can make some changes. We can make things better, but like, this is kind of what we've chosen for yeah. ourselves, right? This is how America is shaped right well, now. And that's kind of what I want to get into now with the caller. Um, and I'm going to bring in Hollis on line one. But before I ask Hollis uh, about their question, I just uh, we talked about some of these things that won't be politically palatable. I hope we can get into some ideas for solutions that might be bipartisan and might work. And perhaps Hollis has some ideas for us. Hollis is on line one and wants to talk about enforcement. Hollis, you're on Studio Two. What's your question or comment? Hi, my question is, I moved from California to Pennsylvania several years ago, and where uh, drivers don't stop at crosswalks. In mm. California, the fine for not stopping at a crosswalk is very, very high. In Pennsylvania, it's very low, and it's never enforced. Mm. 
Hmm. So my question is, is ticketing and fining a deterrent to uh, reckless driving? That's a fascinating question. I'll bring you in now, Matt. Um, Is that something that we could accomplish? Let's imagine that we can't touch weight, we can't touch speed, we can't totally change the design of our cities. Is that a lever we can pull? Enforcement? Yeah, it works, right? I mean, we know it works. I'm going to add a caveat, but we know it works from countries like France, which have ratcheted up... uh, enforcement and ticketing, usually through speed cameras, their fatalities went plummeting because everyone learned that there were speed cameras and they're not supposed to speed. They learned that these were the consequences they faced. In the U.S., we could do something like that. It is politically palatable in some parts of the country. But I I do want to offer this caveat. You know, it's neither I'm not saying that increased enforcement wouldn't work, but I I am saying that you have to be aware of some of the consequences, Mm. consequences, which include Fines and fees, which studies have shown, typically fall on poorer folks, typically fall on communities of color. It's regressive. Le- yeah. It's regressive. Yeah. And the people who get targeted are people who can find themselves quickly trapped in just appalling cycles of criminal justice debt. They can lose their license. They can lose their livelihood. So does that mean we shouldn't do the enforcement? No, but it it means, you know, you got to be really careful mm. about how we do it. And and the last thing I'll say is, you know, it is no accident that a lot of the police shootings that we have seen around America in the past five or six years have been the result of traffic stops. Yeah. When you put police in contact with people, when you put them in more contact with people, there is always the potential for violence. So again, it, you just have to go into it with eyes open as you think about the, the solutions. Yeah. And I want to... Um bring in another caller. We have Susan from Mount Airy on the line. Uh, Susan is a driving instructor. Susan, you are on Studio 2. What is your question or comment? Well, uh, I have about 500, but I'll just start with... um... (laughs) Give us one, Susan. You're number one. (laughs) Sure. I'm wondering if Matt has ever sat in the car with a driving student, especially in Pennsylvania, let's say a 16-year-old who's now ready to learn how to drive in the car. And, and, well, I would imagine Matt has yeah, it. But what's just your, what's walking your... through. What's your point here? Well, here's yeah. the problem. Here's one problem. First of all, I heard him um, minimize distraction. Distraction kills many more people than drunk driving, which gets a whole lot of airplay. Hmm. And number two, teens of 16 and 17 years old, their brains have not yeah. fully developed. Mm. Their peripheral vision is not fully developed. And I guess I'll just stop right there and say distracted driving is what it's about. And now with phones and the big monitor in the middle of the Teslas and all kinds of cars like that, we're in bad shape. It's much worse than when I did it. And believe me, I gave it up because my odds were that one of my students would one day not see 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 a bad thing happen in the car. And I couldn't take Mm. that. So uh, those are my comments. Thank you so much, Susan. Quick response, Matt, with about a minute left. Uh, Susan brings up a perhaps Very that the, the 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 limits for who should be able to drive the thresholds maybe need to be changed, and she also felt maybe you were minimizing the effect of distraction. Your quick response on those two points? Yeah, I don't mean to minimize it. I just mean yeah. statistically, it is smaller than let's say speeding, which Got results it. in far more fatalities. But uh, her her other points are are valid, and and the, what I would say about about teens and younger drivers is we are failing 
young people in a lot of parts of the country when it comes to driver education, particularly in rural areas where they may not have access to an in-person instructor and people are learning literally virtually on a mm. computer how to drive their car. Wow. It's a concern. It absolutely is. And it's a, it's a scary one. Well, um, I guess we're not going to leave it on a high note today, exactly, Cherry, but yeah. it's a really fascinating conversation and something I think we should all be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. uh, that's Matthew Scher, contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. Matt, thank you for joining us on Studio Two and sharing your reporting with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and coming up next, political strategists Mark Nevins and Christopher Nicholas are standing by. We're going to be talking about all things politics. Get on the, the phone. 2024 election. Get on the phones, politicos. I know you're out there. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. Hello, voters. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt, <laughs> and we are turning to politics now. Oh, yeah. Former President Trump dominated the Iowa caucuses with a 30-point win on Monday, capturing 51% of the vote. Now the candidates are headed to New Hampshire for next week's primary, but can any of them mm. stop Trump? Governor DeSantis and Governor Haley are the only two who look remotely viable. Still, it sure looks like we'll have a Trump-Biden runoff this November. And a lot of voters are not thrilled about that. With us now are two seasoned Pennsylvania political consultants to talk about the Republican primary and what's looking like a Trump-Biden matchup this year. We have Christopher Nicholas, a GOP political consultant and podcaster. Christopher, welcome. Hello again. Thanks to be with you guys again. We also have Mark Nevins, a Democratic strategist with Dover Strategy Group. Mark, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. And we want to hear your thoughts about the race and the candidates. Um, are you voting in the Republican primary? Who do you like? Are you one of these undecided voters? It's a rare breed. If we can find you out in the wild today, give us a call. Email studio2 at whyy.org or call 888-477-9499. So uh, first off, I want to start by taking a look at the Iowa caucus results. Trump dominated. We heard that. Ron DeSantis came in a far second, followed by Nikki Haley, a close third. All other contenders have essentially dropped out of the race. I want to start by playing this clip from Trump after his Iowa win. We're going to drill, baby, drill right away. Drill, baby, drill. We're going to seal up the border and we're going to have to deport. We're going to have to have a deportation level that... We haven't seen in this country for a long time, since Dwight Eisenhower, actually. So I don't want to be overly uh, rough on the president, but I have to say that he is the worst president that we've had in the history of our country. And so, uh, Christopher and Mark, I mean, clearly Trump sort of looking ahead to November. I just want to get your takeaways from Iowa. Do his con do are there re any real contenders here? I'll, I'll go first as a Republican. As a matter of course, I've always put more stock in New Hampshire, which is actually a primary. Iowa is a caucus where you have to be somewhere specific at, eight, at 7 p.m. their time. Turnout this year was down about 45 percent from the previous contested GOP caucus in 2016. Uh, New Hampshire actually uh, a regular state that does a regular primary, so you have lots of hours to vote. 
Uh, I think Trump clearly is in the driver's seat. Uh, New Hampshire will be a big test for the other two, for former governors uh, Haley and uh, uh, DeSantis. And in Iowa, half the people voted for Trump and half the people voted for somebody else. So it'll be interesting to me to see what that ratio is next week in New Hampshire. Uh, Look inside your crystal ball here, uh, Christopher. Uh, What would you need to see in New Hampshire to convince you that this could become a real race? Well, I think Governor DeSantis is clearly showing signs that he's going to concentrate more on the next state, South Carolina, where, ironically, Nikki Haley used to be governor. So in New Hampshire, with Chris Christie dropping out and then Vivek Ramaswamy also doing the same thing, it's not uh, actually, but really it is a two-person race. So what I would look for, whether I was Team Trump or Team Haley, is uh, A, who wins, but if Trump wins, is the margin significantly less than what it was before in Iowa. The most recent poll I saw, I think from CNN, had Trump up about 44 to 40. So that clearly is in a totally different neighborhood than what we saw in Iowa. Yeah, and I want to get Mark's uh, takeaways from the Iowa caucus. I mean, would a, would a Biden campaign even be thinking about the contenders at this point? Because it pretty much looks like it's going to be Biden-Trump again. Oh, I suspect that the uh, Biden campaign assumes and is planning to run against Donald Trump in 2024. Um, But I do think what Christopher, Christopher made a couple of really important points, I think, one of which is that the Iowa caucus, because it's first, always gets a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. But but it's a caucus. You know, it's not it's not an election like most people are used to. I mean, people are literally writing down their votes on a piece of paper and putting it into a paper shopping bag. So it's not it's not your traditional uh, election scenario. Um, but there was there was a, an interesting stat that I that I found sort of if you look under the hood at, at Iowa, um, as Christopher noted, um, you know, Trump won 51 percent, which gave him a, a significant margin of victory. But that means 49 percent of people we're looking for somebody else or we're at least willing to consider somebody else. And in fact, in in suburban areas, suburban precincts or urban precincts or whatever passes for urban in Iowa, um, <laughs> in, in 36. Hey, let's shout out Des Moines. Come on now. Yeah, let's not I put know. down Des Moines. It's a real yes, city. Des Moines, Des Moines is Iowa is city, a city. Stand up. Uh, so, 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 you know, in, in those kinds of environments, in those kinds of precincts, uh, there were 36 of them where uh, Trump got less than 25% of the vote, which tells you at least that there is a, a population of Republican voters um, in a state like Iowa that are looking for somebody else. And those are in those um, vote-rich suburban and urban areas. And I think that's an interesting thing to see uh, moving forward, whether that uh, continues to be an issue for him uh, in states like New Hampshire or um, um, South Carolina or Nevada. And and then I guess, to the other point I think that's interesting to make about New Hampshire is that 
in New Hampshire, undeclared voters are allowed to vote in primaries. Mm -hmm. So undeclared voters in New Hampshire can mm -hmm. choose to vote in the Republican primary. And the last poll that I saw, I mean, Christopher noted, I think, a CNN poll. The last one I saw was a, a, an American research group poll that was, just came out on Monday, and it had Trump and Haley tied at 40 percent. And mm. and what was interesting about that was among Republican voters, Trump was winning 47, 40, 47 to 35. But among undeclared voters, right. Haley was at 51, 24. Wow. We're talking so, so the impact of yeah. undeclared voters in the New Hampshire primary could be significant, and and they clearly favor Haley. So yeah. I, you know, if if she were to yeah. win that New Hampshire primary or even finish, you know, within three or four points, mm -hmm. it would start to puncture maybe the inevitability of Trump. I still think yeah. he will. He's going to win. Yeah. Win. Yeah. I still think he'll win overall, but. It will be interesting to see how the sort of um, yeah, but isn't so isn't like the perception isn't the, the theory the, of there being a legitimate challenge uh, kind of pegged to this idea that all of the non-Trump voters will consolidate behind one candidate, which I would imagine means one of these other two quote unquote main contenders has to That's get right. out of this race. Is that actually going to yep. happen, Christopher? I mean, now we're talking about the psychology yeah. of candidates. Well, well, a couple things. One, before I get to that, which the short answer is yes. The other complicating part in New Hampshire is the Democrats don't really have a primary. Biden is not even on the ballot. To vote for the mm -hmm. sitting president in New Hampshire, you have to cast a write-in vote. Okay? So that means fewer Democrats and Democratic-leaning undecideds may want to do that. So as Mark mentioned, you might have more people, quote-unquote, crossing over. In if you look at the 2016 race, it took a little while to consolidate, but eventually there were kind of two non-Trump candidates and Trump, and that was before we knew everything about Trump that we know now. So if it gets down to Trump and somebody else only, whether that's one of the two governors or somebody else, I think it then becomes a very interesting contrast because... Trump is now much more of a known quantity. In 2016, a lot of the voters were, I'll vote for the devil I don't know, mm. right. rather than the devil I do know, which at that point was Hillary Clinton. Even though she was a challenger, she was the de facto incumbent in that race right. to me. So, yeah, that would be a new stage for the Republican primary. If it gets down to Trump under criminal indictment, 92 counts in multiple jurisdictions mm. and somebody who is not that. So that is a whole new sphere. Now, whether it ultimately changes the course, I don't know. I am personally not one of those Republicans who thinks we have to get this all over with right away. We have. Let me ask you about that, actually, and Christopher. I, yeah, I yeah, because I, as well. I, I'm curious if you think and uh, Mark as well whether like a real primary, like an actual contest, helps or hurts Trump if he then becomes the nominee. I mean, it keeps him in the headlines, but mm -hmm. of course it means more attacks and more time um, in the targets of a rival. So, so how do you parse that? And I'll start with you, Christopher, and then hand it over to Mark. Well, this will be my 21st cycle in this business. And I remember, what's the phrase I'm old enough to remember when 
when people called Donald Trump the Teflon president because nothing stuck to him, mm-hmm. quote unquote, well, Donald Trump has redefined that times a million. Okay, all of the things that's been thrown at him, fairly or unfairly, things he did or didn't do, etc., and here he is in the polls, tied or beating Biden in a lot of places, yeah. which says a lot. Yeah. about the weakness of both of them. I mean, I think we're in a situation, Mark, I'd be curious to what you think. I think a lot of people, professionals, look at it and say, Trump is the only Republican who could lose to Biden. And mm-hmm. Democrats say, Biden is the only Democrat who could lose to Trump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both um, actually wildly unpopular. Uh, mm-hmm. In every poll you see that they're both, have unfavorables in the high 50s, which is just astonishing. It's terrible. Um, I guess I would say I, I think I, I agree with Christopher that that all of the stuff that that's been thrown at Trump doesn't seem to impact his standing in the polls. Although I think it all sticks to him. I, I I'm not sure he's Teflon. He may be Velcro because there is just no getting away from all of the things that that he's been accused of. But I do think that. To get it to your to your core question there about um, you know what needs to happen in order to sort of change the pace of this uh, election, one of DeSantis or or Haley will have to drop out. If Haley finishes close in New Hampshire, it's going to change the dynamics. It's going to change the pressure on DeSantis, and if that gives her momentum heading into her home state of South Carolina, it's going to be even harder for DeSantis to not get out of the race. And and then once it becomes a two-person race, this could go on for a while. And to, to Christopher's point, you know, the primary process is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, people don't like it if you're inside the bubble of the party because, you know, it's expensive, but you suck up all the oxygen. All the conversation's yep. gonna yeah. be about the Republican candidates. And, and I want to kind of bring the light on Pennsylvania because I know our primary is a ways away. Um, but if it got down to a two person race and one of the governors were actually able to make it here to Pennsylvania, the polls show that, you know, between a Biden Trump matchup, you know, there's a they're they're very close and within um, the margin of error. Um, also, a DeSantis Biden matchup would be uh, the same way, but that you know, Biden would do very well against Nikki Haley. And this is according to um, a survey from The Telegraph. Um, Just your thoughts on what would happen here in Pennsylvania um, if someone other than Trump um, made it to the finish line, even though it doesn't look like it. Well, I will I will start by quoting a former longtime client and boss of mine, Arlen Specter, who would say that it would make it a spirited, that was one of his favorite words, a spirited Republican primary here. I would ask people to hearken back to the 2008 Democratic primary, Mm -hmm. Mark, you may have been involved in that, where it was essentially a two-person race between then-Senator Obama and then-Senator Clinton. And that was a very spirited affair because it kind of cleared up that that's who it was between a couple of weeks before Pennsylvania, on the Democratic side, there was a big gap between whatever state came before and us. I think that would be the same case on the Republican side, because you have people from all over the country saying, boy, 
you know, this is it. This is our battle of Gettysburg, so to speak, to come in and, you know, really, uh, quote-unquote, make a stand. You could have people from both sides saying that. So, I mean, that'd be terrific. We'd have even more attention on Pennsylvania. It would help our economy. I'm all I'm all for that. Like Mark, I think primaries can be can be good things too. Yeah, and that that 2008 primary with uh, Obama and Hillary was a great example of that. That by the time Obama got out, he had operations in place in states he may not have had operations in place had he not had to go through that primary process. They were all warmed up. They were all ready to go. There was an advantage to the exposure he got in those states leading up to the general election. So, yes, it's expensive. It can be bruising. But there is an upside to a prolonged primary. He's fired up and ready to go. That was Obama's tagline second time around, right? That is. Um, One more question for you, uh, Mark, as we get out of here. If it is indeed Biden versus Trump in the 2024 general Mm -hmm. election, do you think Biden's strategy will tilt more toward just keeping the people that voted for him in 2020 sort of reassembling that coalition or do you think he'll try to aggressively court more of the folks who who voted for trump but maybe holding their nose a bit in 2020 which way do you think he leans in about 30 seconds yeah i think it starts with holding his coalition from 2020 but he he can't just do that he's going to have to grow it and i think the results in iowa show that he has some opportunity in the suburban areas to get those independent or even moderate Republican voters. Well, that was Mark Nevins, Democratic strategist. Uh, We also heard from Christopher Nicholas, GOP consultant and podcaster. Thanks to both of you for joining us today on Studio Two, and perhaps we'll see you again before November. I'm sure we will. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yep. Well, that's it, Avi, for our show today. Your first show back from vacation. Uh, yeah, just stretching the muscles that's again. That's right. Be I'll sh- be faster tomorrow. <laughs> Friends, be sure to follow WHYY on all social platforms and download the show wherever you get your podcasts. And did you know, when you download the show, oh, you can rate and review it I as well. I hope they do that. Yeah. That's just a little tip I'm passing along. There you go. And thanks to our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Besser, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's program from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I am, and I know this, Oh, Avi Wolfman-Erin. Okay. Thank you for joining us. We will talk to you tomorrow.